Sup, you beautiful bastards. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show. And hey, hit that like button if you want me to punch you in the throat because for some reason when I threaten you with physical violence, I get more love. I don't... Who didn't hug you is the question. Hey, let's just jump into it. You know, the first thing that we're going to talk about today is an update to yesterday's story involving Pokimane, Ninja, and Jadeon. Now, I'm not going to rehash everything in yesterday's video. To, to understand this, I would recommend watching yesterday's show. But the reason for the update is that Pokimane, whether it be a direct response to my specific video or just kind of like online chatter in general, she put out a tweet saying, I'm tired of people minimizing the harassment I've received over the last week to just L plus ratio spam. And writing, so here's a list and wow. And looking through it, we really just reported kind of like the last things that happened that led to the ban and why everyone was angry at Ninja. The bigger focus on the ridiculousness of the Blevins threatening a defamation lawsuit against Pokimane. And I'll link to the post in full down below, but let's go through some of it. Because in addition to the things that we covered yesterday, she wrote that Jadeon tweeted negative and hateful things about me before the hate raid and made YouTube videos about me, saying yes, he did spam L plus ratio, but this part matters the least. With her then detailing how Jadeon led this audience to bypass things that she tried to do to stop the harassment, noting that after she put on follower mode in hopes to try and stop the spam, he told his viewers to follow me so they can spam me later. Also saying the harassment wasn't just towards her, but Jadeon opened up profiles of her subs and called them snitches for telling me what he was doing, which then led to his viewers messaging her subs and harassing them, telling them to kill themselves, calling them slurs. But they're then going on to detail how he was publicly making extreme sexual comments about her. Also noting in addition to Ninja, he asked for other streamers to go to war with him, including Aiden Ross, and asking Aiden Ross to tweet at me slash DM me, which increased the spam I received. Also saying that Jadeon multiple times said that she banned him from Twitch, but saying no, it's Twitch's decision and he would have been banned if he hate rated anyone else. But they're also noting that when she went live on Twitch, he'd stream himself reacting to her stream on his Instagram Live, which she says made her receive even more harassment. That's in addition to all of his fans spamming all of her social media platforms, including threats, etc. And then seemingly trying to then end this with a follow-up tweet writing, I'm glad he apologized and told his viewers to chill. Hope he does better in the future and that this will be the last time I have to talk about this. And that, at least for now, is pretty much where this update ends, but I do want to kind of end on a personal note. One, it was important for me to try to rush this update in because the harassment was far more egregious than I was aware of. And two, even though people always tell you not to do this, I do want to say I think I was justifiably criticized. While the coverage yesterday was factual, I think, in an effort to, to more specifically focus on just the insanity of the, the Jessica Blevins ninja situation threatening a lawsuit, I ended up accidentally minimizing the level of harassment, which, once again, we just walked through it, is crazy. Like, the general spam and harassment situation was already wrong, but this is a lot more involved. I think it's important to acknowledge and address those moments and not just be like, hey, you criticize me, go fuck yourself. Even though it does feel like everyone is at war, there are at times, this is a shocker, justifiable criticism. And then we had Britney Spears hitting her sister Jamie Lynn with a cease and desist this week over her recent book tour. As you likely know by now, Britney was recently freed from a 13-year conservatorship under her father. And over the past year, in her fight to get out, Britney has accused her whole family of doing nothing to help get her out of the situation where essentially she had no rights. And while her father, Jamie Spears, in this free Britney movement has largely been seen as the primary villain, you also have a lot of people going, what did Jamie Lynn know? What did she do? What did she not do? And so now, while those questions are in the air, Jamie Lynn just just so happens to be releasing a memoir, which is the catalyst for what has now become a very public war of words between the sisters. Recently, we've seen Jamie Lynn doing a slew of promotional interviews, in some cases talking about Britney, the conservatorship, her father, and other personal matters that are also a part of the book, with some having criticized Jamie Lynn for releasing a memoir at this time, Britney included. And in response to all of that, you have Jamie Lynn trying to stick up for herself, saying that the book is not about Britney, even though, as her sister, some of the stories do involve her. Also, what's got a lot of people talking is the most recent interview that Jamie Lynn did, which was on the popular Call Her Daddy podcast with host Alex 
Cooper. With Alex actually being hit with a wave of backlash even before the episode was released. People saying, why did you even invite Jamie Lynn? She shouldn't get your platform. But then of course, a lot of people still listen to that podcast where we saw Jamie Lynn talking about her father had substance abuse issues, but as the baby of the family, she kind of felt like she was protected and insulated from some of his behavior. And also saying that she had other sort of nerve-wracking experiences, noting that she didn't feel like Britney's behavior would stay the same, it could be erratic. With Alex Cooper actually asking Jamie Lynn about a passage in her book that read. You write, Britney said to me, baby, I'm scared. And she took a large knife from the kitchen, pulled me along to my room and locked us both inside. She put the knife in the bedside table drawer and simply repeated, I'm scared. She needed me to sleep beside her. I knew something was wrong and I was powerless to do anything about it. With Jamie Lynn saying she didn't know what Britney was scared of or what prompted this and adding that she never thought that Britney would harm her, but. I think that people need to remember, I'm telling this story about what I experienced, no matter who that person was that pulled me into the room. You have to understand like that was an experience I went through and it was really scary. I felt really unsafe. Also talking about how she felt like she was living in her sister's shadows, being sort of behind everything as her parents dealt with her sister. It's like, imagine like a big ship and I'm like just the little like dinghy riding in the wakes, like trying to like survive. But they're adding that she loves Britney, she admires her, but felt like she was always responsible for her reputation, even though that was not a possible thing for her to do. It's like my whole life, I kind of felt like I didn't matter. So it's like, I just wish that mattered. We've seen Britney respond to some of those claims, denying the knife story, writing, I've never been around you with a knife, or would I ever even think to do such? We've also seen Britney addressing Jamie Lynn, saying that she felt like she didn't matter. Britney writing on Instagram that she's also had to ask herself if she mattered, but also adding, you do matter and don't you think for one second you don't. But also this is really just a small fraction of the massive back and forth that's been going on right now. And so with all of that, we then get to the cease and desist letter, which was sent by Britney's lawyer, Matthew Rosengarten, obtained by Variety. With that letter addressing the press tour and saying, we write with some hesitation because the last thing Britney wants is to bring more attention to your ill-timed book and its misleading or outrageous claims about her. Although Britney has not read and does not intend to read your book, she and millions of her fans were shocked to see how you have exploited her for monetary gain. She will not tolerate it, nor should she. With it also mentioning some of the issues that Jamie Lynn brought up regarding her father's saying that Jamie Lynn, of all people, should be sympathetic to Britney. And continuing, having endured a 13-year conservatorship that stripped her of civil rights and fundamental liberties, Britney will no longer be bullied by her father or anyone else. Britney was the family's breadwinner, and she also otherwise supported you. Publicly airing false or fantastical grievances is wrong, especially when designed to sell books. It is also potentially unlawful and defamatory. And the letter asking that Jamie Lynn cease and desist from referencing Britney derogatorily during her book tour, or else legal action could be taken. But from that, I want to take a second to thank the sponsor of today's show, Olipop. Olipop is the new soda that looks and tastes exactly like your favorite childhood sodas, but without all the processed sugar and artificial ingredients. Olipop actually tastes like the real thing, but has less than 5% of the sugar and net carbs of the sodas we grew up on. And it's also got a third of your daily fiber intake, which makes it the only soda that I know that's good for your gut. Olipop is gluten-free, vegan, paleo-friendly, and only 35 calories. Basically, it satisfies my sweet tooth and has curbed my soda addiction. The variety 12-pack includes root beer, strawberry vanilla, cherry vanilla, ginger, lemon, vintage cola, and my favorite, orange squeeze. So if you love classic root beer or Stewart's orange cream soda as a kid, I'm telling you, Olipop really is just like the real thing. And because so many of you have responded to the variety pack offer that we had right now, they're offering you beautiful bastards 15% off site-wide on all their flavors. So just go to drinkolipop.com slash DeFranco or click down below and be sure to use code DeFranco to get 15% off. And then in potentially positive news, I almost don't even want to talk about this story just out of fear that we're going to jinx it. I'm not even a superstitious person. Right now, we have hit the point where we're getting experts saying that this may be the beginning of the end of 
of the Omicron wave. Right now, in the parts of the United States where the variant hit early, right, Boston, New York, Washington, DC, yes, we saw a big spike in cases, but just like in South Africa, we're starting to see a dramatic decline. Now, before we all start cheering preemptively, remember, this is not over yet. I'm talking very much about the East Coast. There's still areas in the country where Omicron hasn't even peaked yet. Plus, it's important to remember that other thing that lags behind cases being reported, and that is the number of deaths. Right? Because if everything continues to track, when you have a peak number of cases, you need to wait about two weeks to see when we're going to hit the peak number of deaths. Which I think is also why we saw over the weekend the U.S. Surgeon General warning people we have not nationally hit our peak yet. And it's important to keep in mind at a time where, yes, it does appear that Omicron is less severe in the sense of, like, killing you. It is still killing a meaningful number of people every single day, even though I think, you know, at this point, I, I feel like we've all kind of been forcefully desensitized with those numbers. But, knock on wood, somewhere you do it too, you son of a b If everything continues like we've seen in other places hit earlier, we could see a light at the end of the tunnel. But also with that, we have to keep in mind and cross our fingers that there's no immediate variant right after Omicron. And that's actually something that Bob Walker, chairman of the University of California, San Francisco Department of Medicine told Axios, and adding it really does feel like the building blocks of a conversion from pandemic to endemic are all there. But still also adding to remember, over the past two years, if we've learned nothing else, it's that this virus surprises us and there are always the possibilities of new factors and curveballs. Yeah, with this news and this story, I really would love to know, what are your, what are your thoughts? How, what are you, how are you feeling right now? How how you doing? How you holding up? And then for a few weeks now, air travel has been a complete nightmare. Airlines canceling flights due to weather, empty flights, and now 5G. It turns out that there's a big concern over 5G though. Do not worry. We're not going into crazy territory. We're not saying that 5G causes COVID. Remember those people? Anyway, I mean, this is real. You have Emirates, Air India, Japan Airlines, British Airways, and more announcing that they would be changing and canceling international flights to the U.S. because of issues with 5G. Now, this won't be happening at every airport, and each airline has targeted different airports over the problem, but as far as what is the issue? Without getting too into the details, a signal from 5G towers can interfere with older aircraft's radar altimeters, which are the things to see how close they are to the ground in bad weather. Right, a thing that I very much want on my airplanes, especially whenever I'm flying into Atlanta. When you fly in, it feels like the clouds are like 15 feet above the ground. But yeah, and, and the reason you have this issue is the altimeter and 5G rely on certain radio wave frequency ranges known as bands. And recently, in order to accommodate wireless providers wanting to offer 5G to customers, the government allowed more radio bands to be used by wireless companies. However, some of these bands, especially the ones that AT&T and Verizon plan to use for their 5G rollout today, are right next to bands used by some aircraft altimeters. And this issue really only seems to affect the older aircraft because their equipment isn't as good at differentiating between the bands. I kind of think of it like two radio stations bleeding over one another, except, uh, one is giving you fast speed so you can watch yellow jackets and the other uh, letting you know where the ground is when you're traveling hundreds of miles an hour in a flying tube. So, you know, equally important. And in fact, this is such a concerning issue that the FAA issued an order back in December to ban pilots from using these altimeters around airports where low visibility conditions would normally require them. Which obviously not ideal and brings us to why airlines don't even want to deal with the problem. With CEOs from 10 airlines this week releasing a letter warning of catastrophic consequences if Verizon and AT&T rolled out their service, urging the government to further delay the rollout of 5G near airports. With that then prompting AT&T and Verizon to both agree later on Tuesday to delay deploying 5G towers near airports. So if that's where you're living, you work, and you're driving through, you're gonna have to stick with 4G for now. And while yeah, the airlines aren't happy about this, I would say the cell carriers are furious. With a spokesperson for AT&T saying, we are frustrated, read, piss the fuck off, by the FAA's inability to do what nearly 40 countries have done, which is to safely deploy 5G technology without disrupting aviation services, and we urge it to do so in a timely manner. So kind of just saying to the FAA, there are 41 people in this room and you're the dumbest fucking one. What is your problem? You know that this has been coming. And thanks to the pandemic, you've had essentially two light flight years to actually deal with this. And also, if you're an American and you're like, this isn't gonna affect me, right? This is gonna be an issue for travelers. I don't travel. It's also going to affect the economy because it affects commerce and cargo planes. But yeah, as it stands now, the, the current Band-Aid fix is kind of a, a two-mile 5G-free buffer zone around airports, but that deal is only supposed to last
last for six months. And then let's talk about the absolutely massive updates regarding New York Attorney General Letitia James's fraud investigation into former President Donald Trump and his family business, the Trump Organization. Because yesterday, James announced that she had significant evidence that Trump and his company falsely and fraudulently misrepresented the value of assets and the former president's personal worth to, quote, financial institutions for economic benefit. Marking the first time that Letitia James has made specific accusations against Trump and his business. With all of this coming from a nearly 160-page filing asking a judge to order Trump, Ivanka, and Donald Jr. to comply with subpoenas for their investigation after the former president sued James to block her from questioning them. With a filing claiming that Trump and the company inflated the value of six properties, including several golf courses in Trump's own penthouse and Trump Tower on financial statements to obtain favorable loans, tax deductions, and insurance coverage. With the document adding that many of the financial statements were, quote, generally inflated as part of a pattern to suggest that Mr. Trump's net worth was higher than it otherwise would have appeared. With James outlining several specific examples, such as a financial statement where the value of Trump's Seven Springs estate in Westchester was boosted by the fact that it listed seven mansions worth $61 million, that didn't exist at all, which resulted in Trump receiving millions of dollars in tax deductions on that property as well as another in Los Angeles. Also at another notable instance, you had the AG's office saying that the $327 million value of Trump's penthouse and Trump Tower, that was calculated off a financial statement that falsely reported his home as nearly triple its actual size, claiming that it was 30,000 square feet, though Trump had signed documents stating it was actually 10,996 square feet. While there are other similar examples, that last one is especially significant because it directly ties Trump himself to the allegations of financial wrongdoing. It's also not the only instance, but the one we're gonna be talking about now. With a filing also saying that the Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer, Alan Weisselberg, who notably was indicted this past summer on multiple criminal charges relating to the business tax dealings, implied that Trump was involved in finalizing the false valuations. Also another top Trump Organization executive testifying that he was under the impression that Trump reviewed the statements before they were finalized. Also of note here, while the filing provides less direct links to Trump's children, it does detail their involvement. Specifically alleging that Ivanka Trump rented an apartment at Trump Park Avenue and was given an option to buy for $8.5 million, despite the fact that the property was valued at more than $20 million. It also connecting Donald Trump Jr. to some of the properties flag claiming that there's evidence that he was consulted on the statements of financial condition. And though he's not named in the subpoena, it's also worth noting that the filing says that Eric Trump pled the fifth more than 500 times in response to questioning. And so with all of that, you had Letitia James arguing that it's necessary for her investigation to question Trump and his two children on their alleged involvement with her tweeting last night. We are taking legal action to force Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and Ivanka Trump to comply with our investigation into the Trump Organization's financial dealings. No one in this country can pick and choose if and how the law applies to them. And adding that all three have all been closely involved in the transactions in question, so we won't tolerate their attempts to evade testifying in this investigation. Now, as far as responses to all of this, Trump himself has not issued a statement, but a Trump Organization attorney representing Don Jr. and Ivanka did respond by arguing that the subpoenas violate the constitutional rights of the family. And in a statement this morning, the Trump Organization denied James's allegations as baseless and accused her of trying to mislead the public yet again. But as far as what happens next, it's important to remember that there's actually two things happening here. Letitia James's investigation is civil, and because of that, she can only sue Trump his company and his children, but she can't file criminal charges. But that's why a key thing here is that her probe is running parallel to a criminal investigation into the same conduct led by the Manhattan District Attorney who does have that power. But of course, both investigations are still underway. And while James's office says it has not decided if the current evidence merits additional legal action, that may change if the Trumps are forced to testify. But with all of that said, that is where we are now. It'll be interesting to see uh, what happens with this, but also if this progresses. I mean, one of the key things with Trump as far as his success, and I mean that even before the president is he knows how to like stretch these things out to delay. So who knows what's gonna happen, when it's gonna happen, but notably, this is still a massive step in a series of investigations that have been going on for years. But ultimately, that is where that story and today's show ends. And so of course, with that, thanks for watching. I love yo faces and I'll see you tomorrow.